pray together. Father, we do not take ourselves seriously, but we do take Christ seriously. He is all and in all. He is preeminent above all things. He is not only creator, but redeemer. He's our savior and our Lord. He is our heavenly master and to him we bow. To him we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And it is his word that we hope to hear now. Give us more of Christ as we apply this word to our homes. Do this for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a relationally broken world. Let's start with some facts this morning. Every nine seconds in the U.S., a woman is assaulted or beaten. Every nine seconds. In the United States, an average of 20 people are physically abused by intimate partners every minute. This equates to more than 10 million abuse victims annually. On a a typical day, domestic violence hotlines will answer nationwide over 20,000 calls a day. Domestic violence accounts for 15% of all violent crime. It is the most common among women between the ages of 18 to 24. And only 34% of people who are injured by intimate partners or domestic violence receive medical care for their injuries. We suspect that if all the instances were reported, these numbers would be much higher. The cost of domestic violence will exceed $8.3 billion annually. But somewhere between 20% and 60% of the domestic violent victims will lose their jobs due to reasons stemming from the abuse. And along with the abuse come other kinds of issues like depression uh, and so on. That's domestic abuse, but think also with me about child abuse and neglect. Nearly 700,000 children are abused in the U.S. every year. Child Protective Service agencies protect more than 3 million children a year. The younger you are, the more vulnerable you are to abuse. Children in the first year of their life had the highest rates of victimization. About four out of five abusers are the victim's parents. The parent of the child victim was the perpetrator in some 78.1% of the cases that were substantiated, which means documented and proven. What about the stats on slavery? There's an estimated 20 to 30 million slaves across the world today. Today. An estimated 800,000 people are illegally trafficked across international borders every year. There are 161 countries that are affected by the traffic of human slaves. The majority of modern slavery victims are between the ages of 18 and 24. 1.2 million children are enslaved through forced labor and exploited in the sexual uh, slave trade industry each year. 90% of women and children who end up as sex slaves were victims of childhood sexual abuse. So these issues sort of link together at many places. The total yearly profit, profit gained from human trafficking is a staggering $32 billion a year. Slavery is still profitable. In 1850, the cost of a slave, if converted in today's dollars, it would be about $40,000. That's the 1850 cost. The cost of a modern-day slave is about $90. The cost of procuring slaves has gone down, and the profit of abusing them has gone up. So today, trafficking is ranked as the third largest international crime industry, just behind drugs and arms trafficking. So I've given you a lot of statistics. Matt began asking a question that was in my heart in preparing this message. Is the Bible relevant to all of this? Does the Bible have anything to say that touches upon things like 
domestic abuse and child abuse and even slavery. Let me tell you what all these things have in common. They have a number of things in common, but let me, let me give you one. They're all likely underestimates of the situation. The numbers are likely too low. A large amount of this goes unreported, and estimating the number of slavery continues to be incredibly difficult because of the nature of that wicked trade and the difficulty with data collection. But these numbers, low or large, they're telling us one glaring thing. We live in a relationally broken world, more broken than we know. And that brokenness is across the world somewhere, or even a neighboring country, or a neighboring state, or neighboring county. It's in our city, and it's in our neighborhoods. It's in our church. An audience this size is likely someone in this room who has experienced abuse at the hands of an intimate partner or who have grown up in a home with abusive parents and maybe even been touched by modern-day slavery. We said that last week Christianity is an other-world religion with this-world power. And that's true when it comes to our relationships. We've titled this sermon series through Colossians, Our Treasures in Christ. And in Colossians 3, verse 18, now in chapter 4, verse 1, we discover that one of the wonderful treasures that we have in Christ are renewed relationships, repaired and healed and made whole relationships. In fact, if you ask yourself the question, if nothing changed about your relationships, would you be happy? Many of us might say no. And the wonderful thing about this treasure we have in Christ is that if Christ is the center of the relationship, and if nothing changed except that Christ was the center, this text holds out the promise of happiness and hope and glory forevermore. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to hang our thoughts on three points. Number one. Jesus calls, calls marriages to be marked by respect and love. Respect and love. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Number two, Jesus calls parenting now, parenting, to be marked by honor and encouragement. Honor and encouragement. Verses 20 and 21. And number three, Jesus calls slavery to be marked by sincerity and justice. Sincerity and justice. It's the remainder of our text. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, Treat your bond service justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. It's looking at this text, and it occurred to me that God has a sense of humor. He sometimes, in one paragraph, put a whole bunch of issues to stretch the preacher and the people. I mean, we got submission and parenting and slavery all in one paragraph. And I remember thinking this morning, looking in the mirror, I said, Lord, I chose to preach Colossians because I wanted the people to know how great you are. And he says, I chose to put this paragraph in Colossians so that they would know I'm greater than you think I am. And Christ, if he's in the midst of even our most difficult relationships, transforms those relationships and makes them something really quite extraordinary. So he starts with marriage in verses 18 and 19. Now, remember what Paul has been arguing in chapters 2 and 3. He's been saying that Christians are united to Christ. 
that by virtue of repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, something spiritually has happened to Christians. We have been joined together with Christ such that just as Christ died and was buried and was raised from the grave, we participate with him in his death and his resurrection. Now he says that has implications for all of life. And so in chapter 3, verses 5 to 11, he tells us that that means we're going to wind up putting off some old things of sin and putting on the new man, which is Christ. And that's going to result, chapter 3, verse 11, in a new community where there is no longer a slave or free, Jew or Greek, um, circumcised, uncircumcised, where Christ is all and in all. In verses 12 to 17, he says that new community, that new humanity has a new virtue. That they're going to walk out certain virtues, certain excellencies in Christ. Forgiveness, bearing with one another, loving one another, and so on. So he's been talking now about the family of God all the way from about verse 5 down to verse 17. Now he shifts to the earthly family. It's gone from the spiritual to the natural. And he's telling us that our new humanity in Christ has some implications for our natural, our natural family. And so he, he writes here what some scholars call the household codes. You see, as Jahil read earlier, a, a very similar and parallel statement of codes in chapter 6. You see glimpses of it in Titus 2 and in other places of the scripture. These codes were really kind of in the air in the ancient world. They go all the way back to Aristotle. And you find secular writers like, or Jewish writers like Philo and Josephus making reference to the household codes. But there's a staggering difference. In those ancient codes, they were almost always addressed to the men, to people who were in power. And those ancient codes were primarily concerned with maintaining order. Because the family was seen as a kind of basic building block of society, if you've ever heard that phrase. But now as we shall discover in Colossians, the Christian variety of these are not so much sort of written to establish worldly power dynamics, but to transform them. And we begin with marriage. Verse 18, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's pretty straightforward, ain't it? Almost doesn't deserve any commentary except it's so hard. (laughs) Wives are to submit. Submission is a voluntary decision to put yourself under the leadership of another with a respectful heart. Let me give you that definition again. Submission is a voluntary decision to put yourself under the leadership of another with a respectful heart. The submission must be voluntary or else it's coercion. Submission must involve a leader and a follower, or else it isn't submission. And submission must be motivated by respect, or it's deception. You can go along with something and comply with something, and your heart be very much in the opposite direction. Now, now a wife, notice in the text, only owes submission to her husband. Paul uses two possessive words there for emphasis. Your own husband. A woman does not owe submission to just any man. And a wife does not owe submission to anyone other than the one to whom she is in this covenant relationship with. And according to Ephesians 5, 2, a wife is to submit to her husband in everything. So this voluntary act of putting yourself under a husband's leadership is to be all-inclusive. However, verse 18 says of Colossians 3, a wife's submission is to be fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, I think it probably could mean two things. Submission is fitting in the sense that it fits with this new life in Christ. It is consistent with what it means to be a a new creation in Christ. Christ himself submitted to the Father and did the Father's will. And so we have entered into Christ. And so we have entered into this pattern of submitting to one another inside the church. And these structured relationships, marriage, parenting, and slave and master, where submission also factors. And in those sort of subordinate positions, if you will, those follower positions, We are modeling and imaging forth Christ in his submission to the Father. But I think it also carries with it at least the the connotation or the suggestion of something else. 
This idea of as is fitting in the Lord could mean something along the lines of as long as it's appropriate in the Lord. As long as it's appropriate in the Lord. In other words, a Christian wife has no obligation to submit to anything her husband asks her that would violate the commands and the rule of Christ in her life. Christ is a greater Lord than any husband. Always. And so submission to the husband is really a reflection of her submission to the Lord. It's the Lord who rules in the relationship, not the husband. And so submission then is, is sort of seen through that light and practiced through that light. And, and here's the wonderful thing about it. As hard as it is, a wife's submission has an important evangelistic function in the home. Remember what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. You can turn that with me or you can write it down and look at it later. Peter, writing there, says, Likewise, referring to like Christ, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, wives, I say this lovingly. Some of y'all talk too much. Your husband doesn't believe in Christ, or he professes to be a believer, but you got your doubts. He may not be a great leader, and you're wanting great things out of him, and you're wanting the security that comes from good leadership. And your strategy has been just talk, 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 talk. You just add him. You, you, you're badgering him. You, you are bullying him. And, and, and you're leveraging. You're doing all these kinds of things. You're just always in his ear. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter says, actually, you can win if you would be quiet and do what God instructs you to do. Submit to your own husband's. And in that act of submission with a voluntary and a genuine heart, there is an example of purity and modesty and humility that is compelling far beyond words. So what God calls you to as a wife in submission to your own husband is meant to be beautiful because it's meant to reflect the very character of Christ himself. And this is what a wife is called to. So Submission is not something a Christian wife only gives to a Christian, to a Christian husband when, when he acts the way she wants him to. And submission is not something offered only when the husband, you know, kind of is performing well. And submission isn't something done only when the husband makes the right decision according to the wife. I love the way my wife puts it. She says, listen, submission ain't submission until you actually disagree with that rascal. And the other time, you're doing what you want to do anyway. Now, she ain't got no practical experience with disagreeing with me. You know, I just, just, that's all conceptual in her mind, right? <laughs> but that's when it becomes submission. When you order yourself under the leadership, even when you disagree. Now, again, as long as it's not sinful or immoral or illegal, or illegal right? So keeping those caveats. But that's when it becomes submission. And this is the beautiful role of women in marriage. But Paul sort of meets that real quickly in verse 19 with husbands. He says to husbands, now, uh, one command with two halves. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The term used for love there is a term the Bible often uses for God's love when he gave Jesus Christ to die in a sinner's place. It's that agapio love, that, that sacrificial, self-giving, generously, extraordinarily generous love. The love that God showed in Christ when he was saving sinners from his judgment. It is a, a selfless love that gives itself up. And Paul makes this really clear again in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 where he says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. How? When he gave himself up for her. So this love is not merely emotional. It's, it's, it's not merely or primarily about loving feelings, though it includes that. More fundamentally, this love is about taking an action on behalf of the wife that serves and betters and beautifies the wife. 
The flip side is that the husband is not to be harsh with his wife. I think we're meant to understand that you can't be both of those things at the same time. Loving and harsh. They are, they are antonyms. The word harsh here could be translated bitter. This harshness is a, a cousin to the anger and the malice and the contempt. The things that were to be put away in Colossians chapter 3 verse 8. Instead, husbands must live with their wives in an understanding way, in a considerate way, as 1 Peter 3 verse 7 says. Or as Ephesians 5, 29 puts it a little bit more poetically, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So there's no bittersweet in being a husband. It should be all the sweetness of love. Always love, never harsh. That's the Christian husband's motto. See, headship is about sacrificial love, not about control. That's why I don't trust them guys, man, that when I talk to them and they're a little unhappy about whether or not their wives are following them, they're real quick to sort of push the submission button. She needs to learn how to submit. I don't trust that rascal. It's interesting to me that you would read her mail. Why not double down on love? Why don't you die more daily? Why don't you give yourself up more daily? Why don't you wash her in the water of the word? And why don't you receive the injury in the way that Christ himself bore reproach on our behalf? Here's the thing. I I don't think I've ever seen a well-loved wife hardened towards submission. Love your wife in such a way I've heard a good friend Michael put it a number of times. Love your wife in such a way that submission becomes a joy and independence a burden. That's the husband's goal. Give yourself up for your wife. Sacrifice for her. You, you put in first place, so to speak, so that you would be the first one to die. So that you would be the first one to serve. And in that way, just as Christ is modeling the, the submission of the son, in that way you're modeling the sacrifice of the son. You're modeling the gospel in giving yourself for your wife. So, here's the thing. Marriage is meant to be a sanctuary from abuse, not a trap in it. And marriage, beloved, is meant to be a sanctuary from disrespect, not a trap in it. Harshness is abusive. And so are some forms of disrespect and dishonoring. Listen, it's better to dwell in the corner of a rooftop, the proverb says, than with a contentious woman. And we might say, man, both disrespect and harshness at least bruise the marriage covenant. And where it's protracted and where it's serious, it breaks the marriage covenant. There are many Christians who don't have a category for emotional abuse in marriage. Harshness is giving us that category. That is real, and it is painful, and is not to be mistaken. Submitting to that is not to be mistaken for what the Bible here is calling submission on behalf of a Christian wife. Leadership is not harshness. It is sacrificial. Abuse is not leadership. Submitting to abuse or complying with abuse is not submission. If you find yourself in an abusive relationship, get out and get help. Do it quickly. God has not caused you, he's not called you to suffer abuse at the hands of the one who is meant to love you and honor you. Get out, get help, do it quickly. In surveys of men and women, researchers have asked women and men to rank what things are most important to them in marriage. And they'll list things like, you know, physical attraction, physical intimacy, money and wealth, love, respect, sense of humor, and so on. And here's what they find consistently. The highest ranked item among women uh, responding to the survey, Christian women, is love. The highest ranked item among men, Christian men, responding to the survey, is generally respect. It's odd to women, but it's true. Men kind of don't care how much you love them as long as you respect them. (laughs) 
They ask with the choice, do you want love or respect? Most men go respect every time because that feels like love. And some men, it doesn't click for you. That women can put up with a whole lot of disrespect if they felt you cherishing them and loving them. God has sort of arranged this happy dance that where men cherish and nourish and love and sacrifice themselves for wives, they feel loved. And wives have a wonderful way of multiplying what men give them. And they honor and respect and submit to their husbands. And they feel respected. And a respected man has a way of outgrowing even his best potential. There's a happy dance there. This is why Ephesians 5 verse 32 ends this way. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Because in that dance is the transformation that Christ makes in marriage. Making it a sanctuary where both man and woman flourish in each other's love. Single ladies. <laughs> Single ladies. You have an advantage that married women do not. Two advantages, actually. You still have the advantage of singleness. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 calls it, a gift and an advantage. You can live in an undivided heart and mind in service to the Lord. Don't think lightly of that. But you have another advantage, too. You still get to choose. All the wives in here that made their choice, they stuck with that buster. <laughs> right? And if they're honest with you, we, we'll, we'll let y'all have a women's fellowship. Y'all, if they're honest with you, they'll tell you, oh, girl, I wish I had chose, you know. <laughs> See, somebody know. <laughs> For you to choose well, my sister, you're going to have to be patient, intentional, and discerning. You know why? Because guys know how to be peacocks. They know how to spread tail feathers and look real pretty from a distance to look like unlike all the other birds weighted down with all that peacock plumage. But the closer you get to that rascal, you discover some of them are buzzards waving the feathers. They're not real peacocks. But you got to look at that rascal and watch that rascal for a little while to see what kind of bird he really is, if he's a chicken or a duck or an eagle or what. So don't, don't do courtship. Don't do courtship like Cracker Jacks. Some of y'all think the package has promise and you don't know what the prize is inside. And you buy the package and then you get that cheap prize and you're stuck with it. Marriage is a severe yoke. Serious, yo. You meant to make this decision once. Make it well. Be patient. Be discerning. Choose according to godliness. And choose with the counsel and input of other godly sisters and, and your leaders. That you might find safety in the multitude of counsel. And single ladies, look, ready yourself to honor and submit to a husband. You got to ready yourself for that. Everything in the culture will sort of encourage you to ready yourself to be all by yourself. To not need anyone. To bristle at leadership. And, and you will develop the habit of not recognizing godly leadership. Because you're constitutionally opposed to the structure of marriage. Don't fall for the world's delusion. Ready yourself to honor and respect and receive the leadership of a godly man. Practice submission, not to other men, but practice submission to your, your elders collectively, to the leadership of your church. Practice most of all, and most importantly, submission to Christ, honoring his word and applying his word to your life, for he is your Lord in whatever state you find yourself. And the practice of submission will be for your joy and waiting for one who's able then to recognize your dignity, your beauty, your strength, your gifts, and lead it in such a way that it flourishes, oh, that's a wait well worth waiting. Take your time. Single men, ready yourself to love. Ready yourself to love. Start now 
by doing something consistently for others. Giving yourself away for others. Serve and sacrifice now and habitually so that your heart is primed and tuned to serve and sacrifice for the woman that the Lord chooses for you. And put away harshness. See, in the alpha male games, harshness is kind of how you get your ranking in the pecking order. Not, not letting anyone join you, not letting anyone say anything sort of harsh to you without replying in kind. Well, that's the kind of thing that men do that's disastrous when men do it with women. Learn to put that away and learn to instead speak truth to your neighbor in love. To speak with grace, seizing your words with grace and and with kindness. You know, it actually takes more, what's the word I'm looking for? Manhood, maturity, to be kind than to be harsh. A hard man is an immature man and often an insecure man. It's how he defends himself from the rest of the world. But a soft man who can take blows and return kindness, who can build others up, that's a real champion. That's a real man. Practice that. If you need help, get help. Seek out anger counseling if you've got an anger problem. Resolve that while you're single. Don't take that into engagement and into marriage. If you need help, get help. Single men. I love this paragraph I read in a commentary preparing for this. I'll I'll read it to you. I had never thought about this question before, and, and maybe you haven't either. And this is what the writer says. He asks, how many men do you think realize just how much they ask of a woman when they propose marriage. It is no small matter to request that a spirited and capable person give up her independence as one who is answerable directly to God and submit herself to the headship of another. A lot of men give much thought to the qualities of the ideal woman, someone who will meet all their needs and satisfy all their requirements. But how many men reflect on their own qualities, asking whether they are the kind of men that a good woman would willingly and gladly submit to? Brothers, are you asking yourself that? Whether single or married, are we those kinds of men? If you're married and you need help to love and to submit, Don't be proud. Don't be stubborn. Don't be proud in your stubbornness. Get help so that the relationship of marriage with Christ at the center becomes what Christ designs for man and woman and for our flourishing. If Jesus is in the middle of our marriage and we are oriented to Jesus in our roles, we will flourish as Jesus intends even if we face hard things in marriage together. Which brings us to the second relationship. Jesus calls parenting to be marked by honor and encouragement. We see that there in verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. He addresses children in verse 20. They are called to obey their parents. Here's the definition. To obey is to do what you're told, when you're told, And the way you're told, with a respectful heart. To obey is to do what you're told, when you're told, the way you're told, with a respectful heart. The word here translated for children actually isn't referring to just small children. It's children of any age. Uh, So as long as you are in the care of your parents especially, you are meant to honor and obey your parents. Now you say, I'm 30. And I say, well, you're living at home. (laughs) You know? As long as you're at home, you need to be doing what mom and dad say. All right? That's right out the Bible. That's right out the Bible. If you don't want to do what mom and dad say, get your own home. All right? It's that simple. So children are to obey their parents. Notice now, in everything. So when parents give a good instruction, children do not have the right to reject it. As long as the instruction is not sin or does not call for something illegal or moral, and is not itself abusive in any way, then children are meant to obey the authority that God has placed in their lives, namely their parents. But if it is sin, and if it is immoral, 
If it is abusive, children are not required to obey it. Now, the reason children don't obey their parents is not because their parents are great necessarily. Children are to notice, obey, for this pleases the Lord. I suspect that Paul has in the back of his mind uh, the Ten Commandments. He says in Ephesians chapter 6 around verse 4 that this is the first commandment with promise. Children are meant to obey their parents because God is satisfied with it. It it pleases him. It it gladdens his heart. And, And in his gladness, he has pledged himself in the law to bless children with long life and happy life as they have submitted to him. So now if you hear that you're a child, I don't mean any insult by that. It's funny how we even, sometimes people even bristle at the notion of children, right? The world has learned to disdain everything that God values. For you here and you're a child, this means, I think, that the most fundamental act of Christian discipleship, if you're a, a, a child who's a Christian, is obedience to your parents. So living and looking like a Christian will look like living under the authority of your parents. Respecting them, honoring them, doing as they instruct you. This pleases the Lord. And so it ought to please you. Now, if you want to think more about this, if you're a young person here, let me direct you to the book of Proverbs. Especially the first nine chapters. The whole of the the Proverbs is great, but especially the first nine chapters where so much of it is written uh, as a parent speaking to their son or daughter. Read the Proverbs each day. Apply the Proverbs in your relationship with your parents. Let God, your heavenly father, speak to you about how to honor your earthly father. And obey God by obeying your parents. You will know that you are pleasing God. And God has promised to bless you as a result. And so Christianity holds out a great deal to young people. This is not just your mom and dad's religion. This is not just grandma and granddad's religion. God very much means for you to know the blessing and the fruitfulness of a life lived for him. He loves you as a young person. He has purposes for you as a young person. He wants you to walk in that. And if you will walk in that, you will know him and you will know his grace and you will know his love and you will know a true joy in a world that kills itself with false pleasure. Seek the Lord. Follow him. And if ever you're unclear about the voice of the Lord, listen for it in the voice of Christian parents. That will be how he will normally speak to you outside of the word. Then Paul comes, of course, to fathers here. He says, now, obedient children are a blessing from the Lord, but fathers, that obedience isn't gained by our provoking children. That's what's said in verse 21. Provoking in verse 21 is similar to harsh in verse 19. In fact, if a head of household is harsh to his wife, there's a good chance he's going to be harsh or provocative with his children. It's going to be overbearing and, um, uh, and overly critical. It's going to find fault in everything and, and seemingly never satisfy. Christian men should not do that. As I said before, in the ancient world, children were not much more than property. And the emphasis in the household codes in the ancient world was the father's control of the home. And so all that was expected of children was not their pleasing the Lord, but their living in subjection to the father's rule. But when Jesus makes a man a part of the new humanity, control stops being the main principle between father and children or between husband and wife. Instead, love replaces control as the central motivation of a father toward his children. It's striking. The the Proverbs gives us a lot on the way of, of sort of instruction in parenting and child rearing. But there's not a great deal of real estate in the New Testament given to this topic. A lot of what we see in the New Testament is short, like Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, you know, basically don't be harsh with your children. Um, uh, Don't provoke them as we see here. But we get glimpses into fatherhood when we see those texts of Scripture where father is used as a kind of metaphor. So let me give you an example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Hey, let me just take a second. That's a beautiful sound. And you see that man, that father going out with his child? Praise the Lord. Let's encourage that brother. You know, 
That's a good thing. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. Paul writes there, For you know how, like a father with his children, there's the metaphor of a simile, right? Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So what does New Testament fathering look like? Well, a father should encourage each of his children and exhort them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And even when a father has to warn or admonish, he should do so not out of anger, but out of love with hope for their future. So when Paul uses this metaphor over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, where again, he compares himself as a father to the church there, he, he, he points to the fact that he has this hope for them that they will inherit what God has purchased for them in Christ. And so fathering needs to have that eternal and spiritual perspective, always nudging and guiding and directing toward Christ and the hope of glory. That's what we're to be. We're to be men who bring our children up in the fear and instruction of the Lord, in the reverence of God and the teaching of His Scripture. In Christ, fathers are meant to be strong but tender, leaders of their children, not dictators and oppressors and abusers. What's said here, fathers, applies equally to mothers. But I don't think Paul has made any slip in language in addressing fathers in particular to call us into parenting as active participants, not men who just kind of delegate it to women. Mom will take care of it. No, there are things that fathers provide that God has decided would come through them. Fathers are more than paychecks. So, fathers, if I can make one application of this text for us, it would simply be, be there. Be there for your children. Marry the mother, form a family, work to provide, and then be there for your children. Be there emotionally. Be there socially. Be there physically. Be there financially. And you may say, I am struggling to do all those things. That's the right struggle. We're not promised ease in life. Not everything that's good comes easy. It's okay to struggle to provide for your family. That actually makes you a man. It's quitting that calls into question our manhood. Struggle, provide, be there, supply for your family, for your children. Listen, beloved, we have got to turn the curve on the epidemic of unmarried and fatherless homes. We have got to turn the curve on situations where men are in the house, but they're not the children's father. We've got to turn the curve on the millions of kids growing up starving for a father's attention and affection and guidance. And I honestly, apart from well-meaning people who are not Christians who care about parenting programs, I honestly don't know of any other source of motivation and instruction apart from the Christian faith, apart from the teaching of scriptures, apart from what God has designed us to be as men and as mothers and fathers and families. So let the turning begin with us. Let the progress start with us as we yield to God's word and follow him in faith. Which brings us to the third relationship. Jesus calls slavery to be marked by sincerity and justice. You've been holding your breath until we got here, now you can exhale. The Bible addresses the relationship between slaves and masters. Now, you will hear a lot of uh, pastors and preachers sort of try to bring this up to speed to our day and uh, sort of make it to be about employees and employers. I think that's a perfectly appropriate secondary application. But the word here is slaves and masters. And I think we miss an opportunity if we move it only over to that secondary application because slavery is real in our day. And we have to sort of think the Bible all the way down and then work it all the way out so that we're bearing witness on the kinds of things that God calls us to bear witness on in the world. 
And so we're going to deal with this as slaves and masters. But in order to understand the text, let me give you a couple of uh, sort of preambles, a couple of uh, sort of uh, context statements that you need to keep in mind. First of all, there are three of them. First of all, slavery in the Bible is not slavery as it was practiced in the Americas and the Caribbean. It is not based on race, and it was not for life, nor does it reduce people to chattel, to animals, and and less than human, the way the transatlantic slave trade did. So these are different animals, right? Now, if you're like me, that's a good start, but that's not enough, because the texts are in the Bible, and you want to take the text seriously, and you've got to figure out what's really being said here. So let me say a couple other things that the Bible says about slavery. Second, the Bible actually forbids slavery when it comes to, when it speaks of slavery as an institution, particularly the kind of slavery that we would be most familiar with in the new world. Let me give you just two texts. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, that's slavery, right? Or if he is found in his hands or he has kidnapped a man with the intention of, of selling him, but he still got the person in his possession, that person shall surely be put to death. Did you realize that the Old Testament pronounces a death sentence against slave trading? It's not the kind of thing you would have heard in the 1800s and the 1700s in the Americas. And not just the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. So you see what he's saying there, that God has given his law to address people who are not godly, who are sinners, and who are profane. And then he has a long list of examples of such things. Now notice the examples. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. Then he comes to this, enslavers. Or men stealers. You may have a translation. NIV, I think, translates that man stealers. And then he goes on to say, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, no, the slave trade, as we've understood it, is contrary to the gospel. It is contrary to the sound teaching that grows out of the gospel. And the law, in all of its holiness, condemns it as profane and ungodly and unholy. And the Bible, when it speaks of the institution, speaks of it clearly in condemning terms. Here's the third thing I'd want to say. The Bible calls slaves to seek their freedom. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 21 says, were you a bondservant when called? In other words, were you a slave when you were saved? It says, do not be concerned about it, but... If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If you can get your freedom, get it. And in that is the recognition that God has made us to be free. And that human flourishing depends upon the gifts of freedom and all that comes with it. So this means that anyone who sees the Bible regulating slavery, regulating slavery, and concludes that the Bible approves of slavery has it wrong. The fact that the Bible addresses slaves directly actually is a remarkable example of the Bible's inclusion and the gospel's inclusion of people that the society cast out. It's a remarkable example of God having a particular eye on categories of oppressed people and bringing the marginalized into the center of Christian instruction. Slaves would have been a part of the ancient household. And so as Paul addresses the household, he addresses everyone in the household, from wives and husbands to children and parents, now to slaves and masters. And as we're about to see, the Bible then changes the entire dynamic of that relationship between slave and master. Let me give you one more piece of background to the Colossian letter that might help explain why Paul addresses this in his letter to the Colossians at such length. And that's this. The Colossian letter likely would have been delivered by a man named Onesimus. There would have been others in the company, but Onesimus would have been one of them. Onesimus, you may recognize that name from a letter in the Bible called Philemon. Onesimus was a runaway slave from the Christian master Philemon. 
And Paul very likely sending Onesimus back to Philemon that they might be reconciled, not just as master and slave, but that relationship might be transformed so that they're reconciled as brothers in the Lord takes occasion, I think, to instruct the entire church on this dynamic, on the obligation now between Christian brothers, not on the sort of polemics against the entire institution. So with that as background, look at what God says in his word, beginning in verse 22. Bond servants or slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. That's Paul's instruction to the slave. And like the children, the slave is called to obey in everything those who are their earthly masters. Their obedience is to be genuine. Notice what he says there. It's not by way of eye service or only when you're being watched. And notice, it's their obedience is, is not to be as people pleasers. It's not in the fear of man that they are to serve, but it's with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. They serve even as slaves as an act of reverence, as an act of worship to God. It's the Lord who has providentially allowed them to be in bondage. And so it's to the Lord that they orient themselves and they serve and they worship. It's the Lord who's called them to be saved while they are slaves. So it's to the Lord that they must now look and obey as slaves. Verses 23 and 24 make the point more forcefully. Notice, they must work heartily or with their whole souls because they work for the Lord and not for men. And because they know it is from the Lord that they will receive the inheritance as a reward. In other words, they know the Lord has promised them salvation and that salvation is coming and they are going to receive it from him. So they must work with an eye on that reward. And they must work knowing that the Lord they serve will without partiality judge everyone involved. So verse 25 is a kind of swing verse. It, it connects to what he's just said about slaves in verses 22 to 24, but it kind of opens the door to what he's about to say with regard to masters. God is not partial. He does not play favors. He will judge or reward in accord with what we have done in this life. But for the slave, the gospel holds out much better and far beyond the oppression of this world. That's why we can reject wrongdoing even when we are wronged. It's because we have a better reward than merely earthly justice. That's why Christianity is an other world religion with this world transformative power. It's the promise of an inheritance from God that sustains the oppressed in the midst of their oppression. It's a superior hope that eclipses all the things that would bring the heart down to despair. This is why, for as much as I appreciate the brilliance of a man like Tana Hissy Coates, and I, I appreciate so much of his analysis, at the end of the day, I can't ride with him. He has no hope. He encouraged others not to have hope. And what the Christian has is he has, if he has nothing else, is infinite hope. Because we serve a ruling Lord who is governing all things. And so Paul speaks now to slaves and says, listen, lift your eyes beyond your situation and see the one who sits enthroned, who has promised you a reward and an inheritance. That's the one you serve. Serve him with fear and with full heart. And be assured of the promise of salvation. But now, that could be so much by and by. And that could leave this, this sort of differential in the relationship where the oppressed has to live beyond their oppression. But the empowered gets to sort of serve their own base desires and wants. Except that Paul writes Colossians 4 verse 1. He addresses the masters there. Notice there, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. 
Now, I know some of us think slavery is a contradiction to justice and fairness. It's just the, the whole idea of trying to hold that sentence together of, of master, treat a slave just and fair. How, how does that work? That seems odd. Well, they are to do right by their slaves. And to treat them fairly, which means with generosity and kindness and equity. And they must do this knowing that they also have a master in heaven. Paul's been doing a little wordplay through this paragraph. He does it almost every time he talks about slavery. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul calls the slave Christ's free man. And he calls the free man Christ's slave. What's he doing? Well, the earthly master must be mindful that he has a heavenly master too. The slave owner must be aware that he himself is an owned slave if he is Christ. That awareness must determine how he then treats his earthly slaves. In other words, he should treat them the way Christ, his master, has treated him. And it's interesting, when you read the Bible and you think about the use of slavery in the Bible, this is one of the ways that, that God puts the whole idea to pastoral use. So when he's speaking to Israel in the New Testament, he tells Israel things like this. You must be just and you must be kind to the sojourners and the strangers and the aliens among you, remembering that you too were slaves in Egypt. Their experience of 400 years of slavery in Egypt is to shape then how they treat and how they engage other people who are now oppressed in their midst. He's doing the same thing here in the New Testament where he says to the slave owner, you must remember you have a master in heaven. You have become a spiritual slave to Christ. Christ is your master and that must inform how you now live in relationship to those who are your earthly servants. It's the gospel that transforms the entire dynamic. And you say, well, what does that look like in practice? Philemon chapter, verses 15 to 16. Paul is writing there. He's sending Onesimus back to Philemon and he gives Philemon this instruction. He says, for perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? You see what he's saying there? Earlier in the letter, Paul says to Philemon, I appeal to you on the basis of love. That had never been the basis of slavery. That had never been the basis of the institution. Where does such an appeal comes from? It comes from Christ the Lord. It comes from the central motivating dynamic and virtue and power of the gospel, which is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And now having been loved by God, God calls us into a life of love. And that affects every relationship, including the relationship and the dynamic between servant and master. Gone now is entitlement and ownership, and they're present in the middle of the thing because Christ is in the middle of the thing, is brotherly love. Receive him, not as a servant, but receive him as a brother. Paul says both in the flesh and in the Lord. The entire relationship, while it still has the structure, is completely different. The dynamic has been exchanged. The gospel and conversion has made master and slave brother in Christ. This is why Colossians 3.11 is true. Here, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free. For Christ is all and in all. The recognition that Christ is all and in all transforms and transports the relationship to another world, to another dimension. This is the explosive dynamic of the gospel. Doesn't seem big, doesn't seem confrontational, doesn't seem all that massive, but its power is undeniable. One commentator writing on this passage says this, if we are to be fair to Paul, we should note that it was completely impractical for first century Christians, a tiny minority within a sprawling empire with no access to power, to work for the abolition of an institution 
that underpin the whole economic system of the time. He said, now, keep in mind, Christians were this little bitty minority in this vast empire that was ruled by an emperor that thought he was God. There was no laws and no legislature, no way to sort of pull the levers of power. He says, keep that in mind. And he says this, Paul's aim was both more limited and more radical than sort of abolition of the whole system. More limited and more radical. If the wholesale abolition of slavery was not yet a viable proposition, the transformation of individual relationships was. Lives are changed by the power of the gospel. It follows then that even an oppressive relationship based on exploitation can be altered for the better. What do powerless people use to change an unjust system? The gospel. And the work that the gospel does to transform an individual life. This is why everywhere Christianity has been actually practiced, it has changed society in deep ways. Everywhere it's been actually practiced, it has changed the nature of human relationships. So how do we apply this today? Today in many parts of the world, Christians are no longer a tiny minority in a vast empire. The Christian church very nearly spans the entire globe. And in some countries, Christians are the majority and hold positions of incredible influence and power and wealth. I think this means that the Christian, we should all be Wilberforces and Frederick Douglasses. We should be loud voices for the abolition of slavery in all its forms. And we should also be gospel preachers and, and, and advocates of the transformation that Christ brings to those who believe in him. We want to see both personal lives and structural relationships change, made right, made good, made just. So Christians should be on the front lines according to this paragraph, of promoting marriage and ending domestic abuse. The Christians should continue to be on the front lines of child advocacy and ending child abuse. And Christians should be on the front lines of ending sex trades in Europe and, and the United States and India and slave fisheries where boys are enslaved in West Africa and slave-like work in work camps in the Middle East. If our eyes are open, we can see these issues all around us. We have a role to play. We don't necessarily all have the same role to play. And we cannot do everything. But we must not do nothing. This will require that we think carefully about how we use power and privilege. I notice the Christian master, the one in power, he must use his position for just and fair treatment of his slave. This means he's going to have to set aside self-interest and set aside privilege in order to first consider the needs of the other and then do what's fair for the marginalized. Now, we can't be afraid of conversations about privilege. And we can't resent the word and throw away the concept because we don't like that it's most frequently used among secular academics or whatever. It's just a word. You don't like the word? Choose another one. But keep the idea. That here in chapter 4, verse 1, the Christian who is in a position of authority and power, who has means and who has influence, is called to use that in service to the one who is marginalized. And that idea runs throughout this entire chapter. If you want, again, choose another word, but, but notice, that's what the husband is to do for the wife. That's what the father is to do for the child. We all believe that the gospel flips lives upside down. Well, that includes the power and privilege dynamics of relationships too. It reorders those things. But when we zoom out, we see two basic patterns in this paragraph. The text calls those who are in the subordinate or the lower position to focus their attention and their hearts on the highest position, which is Christ. Wives, notice, as fitting in the Lord. Children, for this pleases the Lord. Slaves, it is the Lord you are serving. And at the same time, the text calls the leaders or the persons in the subordinate position, subordinate position, to focus on caring for the people under them. Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, do not provoke your children. 
Masters, treat your slaves with justice and fairness. And they're to do that knowing that there is a higher authority above them. Gone is the issue of power and abuse. There in it all and above it all is Jesus. Any two people who have their eyes focused on Christ will find their relationship with each other totally transformed. Jesus does that. He did it between sinners and a holy God. He does it in his body, the church. He does it in our marriages, in our homes, in our work relationships. Has he done it for you? Have you come to the point where you have trusted yourself to the Lord as your Savior to reconcile you to God the Father and to change all of your relationships so that they fit with his kingdom and his lordship? Today is the day of salvation. Christ died for you and he rose for you. Trust in him and his death and his resurrection will be yours and you will live in him. Do that today. Let's pray.